Well, hello, everybody. It is a blessing to be with you right before the Christmas break here as BSF breaks for uh, Christmas here in the next week. Uh, We are going to be talking through Matthew chapters 11 and 12. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive in and get started in today's lesson. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to study your word. Lord, I I ask you to bless the words that come out of my mouth. Lord, may they be not my words, but your words. Uh, Lord, may what we encounter in Matthew 11 and 12 change our heart, change our attitudes and our minds so that we glorify you in all that we do. It's in all things, in all these things that we pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and get your Bible out. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 11 and 12. And today I'm going to begin with a probing question, somewhat of a deep question, if you will. And the question that I'm going to start with today is where is the state of your heart? Where is the state of your heart today? I ask that question because I think in the midst of the busiest time of the year, a.k.a. the holiday season, uh, it can be easy to gloss over what's going on in our heart and just be preoccupied with holiday shopping and everything that's happening all around us. Uh, I have often experienced the facade that busyness creates, right? The busier I am, the less I need to worry about, the less that I need to focus on my struggles and what I'm experiencing, what I'm going through. I don't really need to take stock of my life when I'm going through a busy transition because I'm just bogged down with everything else that's happening around me. So the state of your heart, right? What is the state of your heart? So if you could take a couple of minutes and really reflect on what's going on in your heart, in your soul, what would you find? Uh, Maybe for some of us, we would be burdened, right? Maybe by by an internal or an external struggle. Uh, Maybe some of us, especially as we near the Christmas, we're in the midst of the Christmas season, and, and the closer we get to Christmas, we might be experiencing bouts of loneliness or depression or anxiety. Or maybe it's the fear of our past. Maybe past sins and mistakes are clouding our heart today. Maybe we are being burdened by the desire to live up to others' expectations of us or maybe even our own somewhat unrealistic expectations. Maybe we're, if we're honest, in a place of doubt. Perhaps we're doubting who Jesus is. We're doubting the core of our faith. Now, I bring these experiences up not to cast judgment, but because I have felt on one, on more than one occasion, these very things, right? Um, And the hope that we're going to have today as we dive into Matthew 11 and 12 is the hope that we always have, and that hope is in Jesus Christ. In Matthew 11 and 12, as you're reading this, as I'm talking through this passage, here's what what I would encourage you to listen for. I would encourage you to listen for his call because he is calling all of us. Regardless of what we're going through, Regardless of whether we're going through intense pain or doubt or loneliness or struggles with sin, his call remains the same. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Let's encounter Jesus' tender call together in these two chapters. So our passage today is going to be broken up into two divisions. 
So our outline is going to be in Matthew chapter 11, the call to believe. That's Matthew 11. And the second outline, the second division today is Matthew 12, the reasons to believe. So we've got the call to believe and the reasons to believe. So let's dive into Matthew chapter 11, the call to believe. So right in these opening chapters of Matthew 11, we are once again reintroduced to John the Baptist. And instead of calling out into the wilderness, um, John the Baptist is actually now in prison. So John from prison actually asks his followers to inquire about Jesus, right? If he is truly the Messiah. Verse 3 tells us that John is asking, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? What a powerful question, right? What an honest question. By the way, have you ever asked that question in your own life of Jesus? Maybe you've encountered a disappointing season of life or maybe you're going through a period where Jesus is seeming far and distant from you. Maybe life circumstances are just so overwhelming and you just ask the question, Jesus, Are you who you say you are? Are you my savior? So full disclosure, I've definitely asked that question even after I have come to faith in Christ. And you know what? I have to believe that as John the Baptist is asking this question, that he really does believe Jesus is the Messiah, right? I mean, after all, back in Matthew chapter three, if you remember, John the Baptist actually witnesses firsthand Jesus's glorious baptism. You know, the father blesses Jesus, right? It's that stamp of approval back in Matthew 3. It's this glorious moment and signifying the beginning of Jesus's uh, earthly ministry. Um, But I think in these verses, John the Baptist is likely confused. He's disappointed. He's unsure. And you know what? Personally, for him, can you blame him, right? How could he not be in this moment? Um, We know from scripture, from the gospel of Mark and later in the gospel of Matthew, that uh, John the Baptist has been thrown into prison for telling King Herod uh, that his current marriage to his his wife was immoral. Um, The notes, your notes for this week, do a fantastic job of highlighting this. But also in addition to this, right, the Jews at the time were expecting a Messiah that would unite Israel, that would defeat Roman occupation. You know, he'd be the conquering king in the earthly sense that he would succeed King David and his throne as king of Israel. Now we do know, right, Jesus is king of Israel, but the true meaning of that statement was far deeper and greater than the people of Israel at that time could have possibly expected. Uh, so I think John has seen what's happening in Jesus's earthly ministry. Um, Rome is not getting overthrown. Um, he's in prison for doing the right thing. And he's wrestling with doubts. And Jesus answers John's doubts by actually affirming a prophecy that was foretold. So Jesus responds in verse four. Jesus says, go back and report to John. This is to John, uh, the Baptist followers. Jesus says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. And this is exactly what we've been studying up until Matthew 11, right? What's been happening? The blind are receiving sight. The lame are walking. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That's a powerful statement. So Jesus, in addition to that, after really encountering John the Baptist's doubt and question head on, he actually commends John the Baptist in verses 7 through 14 for preparing the way for him. Um, A couple of things to note here, I think, uh, in Jesus' response to John the Baptist. You know, first of all, John, or excuse me, Jesus did not berate John, 
for asking the question that he asked in verse three. Um, I think this is helpful because we need to understand that doubts and questions and disappointments are certainly part of this life and the human experience. It is a reality that all of us are going to face on this side of heaven. And Jesus didn't ignore John the Baptist's question, right? He did not abandon him in his question. He addresses John's question head on. We should feel confident and bold enough to bring our honest questions and doubts to the Lord because he's big enough to handle them, right? He is God. Lecture. I heard this from a BSF colleague, and I love this phrase. It says, Jesus is the safest place for our disappointments. I love that, right? If, if we want to take our disappointments anywhere, the first place we should go to is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So there's a couple things to note there about Jesus' response to John the Baptist's question. As we continue, though, in verses 15 through 19, Jesus goes from commending John the Baptist to addressing the unbelief of the people. And he's going to do this again in chapter 12, but he is really getting after their total rejection of him as Messiah. And he, and Jesus accurately, right, points out that his kingdom has always faced opposition at oftentimes violent opposition, right? As he says in verse 12, he expands on that topic a little bit more in verses 20 through 24, when Jesus says, starting in verse 20, Uh, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of the miracles had been performed because they did not repent. You, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had, had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Okay, so again, like I mentioned, we're going to see this again in chapter 12. Um, But Jesus is rightly pointing out that it is not for lack of evidence that people reject him as the Messiah, right? We think about it even today. I mean, they had the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus was fulfilling these prophecies before their very eyes and they were still rejecting him. But how about now? Even in our, if you think about unbelief and rejection of Jesus's message in today's culture and society, we have the entirety of the Old and the New Testament, right? We have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, we have this Bible that has a common thread. I mean, if you think about it, multiple generations, multiple authors, and the common thread at the end of the day from Genesis to Revelation is Jesus, right? You can clearly see that from the Old and New Testament. And yet we still, our culture still looks at that message and profoundly rejects Jesus as the Messiah, It doesn't make sense. And even worse, right? Most people, at least in modern society, don't even give Jesus the time of day. They don't even give him a second thought. See, the reality is that the reason any of us would ever reject Jesus is because of our sin. It is our hard heart that we would seek to reject the only one that could rescue us, that could, the only one that could give us the satisfying and meaningful life that we long for. The salvation that we so desperately need. This is the absurdity of sin. It is the absurdity of unbelief. But once again, as Jesus is really getting after um, the people of his day for, for not believing, Jesus is going to demonstrate his loving care, his grace, his mercy, as he always does. He does not leave unbelievers where they are, but he pleads for them, pleads for them to come to him. 
Um, Jesus uncovers a reality in verses 25 and 26 that it is not the wealthy or the exceedingly intelligent uh, or the rich or um, the powerful or the popular, right, that will necessarily come to him. But rather, it is the common man and woman. It is the lowly, the discarded from society. It is the little children, as he says. And then in verse 27, Jesus is going to reinforce his deity, right? He is the full expression of his father. He is indeed God. And then he concludes this chapter with a a plea, excuse me. In verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This leads us to our first principle, which is that when we come to Jesus, we experience his freedom, true satisfaction, freedom from sin and rest from the world's great burden. So our first principle is when we come to Jesus, we experience true satisfaction, freedom from sin, and rest from the world's great burdens. Okay, let's unpack that a little bit. So I think in this chapter, this is, it's taught us several things. First of all, that no matter who you are, even if you were a great servant of Christ, like John the Baptist, if you have devoted your entire life to the cause of God's kingdom, life's great disappointments, life's circumstances will continue to afflict you, right? This is the reality of our, un- our, our fallen and broken world. This can come in the form of unmet expectations or rejection or abandonment, health afflictions that never seem to go away, or maybe even just an inner brokenness that is perpetual. The disappointments of life are strong. And it is often in those times that doubt can creep in. But I think we need to remember about doubt in these terms, right? We mustn't be, again, I I don't think we should be surprised by the doubt or questions that we sometimes can have or necessarily ashamed of them, right? Because this is part of the human frailty that we're all going to experience. Doubt actually can be fruitful. It can prove fruitful if we take them straight to Jesus, right? If we look at John the Baptist's example, John, when he's in prison, right, inquires of Jesus with a very real question, right? Are you who you say you are? That is a very poignant and powerful question. But he didn't wallow in his doubt behind a prison cell. He actually went to the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. Our biggest questions and our greatest doubts, we can take them straight to Jesus. And um, he's going to answer those doubts and those questions in the way he sees fit. And disclaimer, they may be different than, than what we expect. But as we take our questions to the Lord, we can experience really some beautiful blessings. We can experience his presence, his assurance, right? Jesus did not abandon John. He actually commends John. We receive his mercy, his power. Jesus will not abandon us in our time of doubt or when we have questions. But there is a warning here as well as we read the rest of Matthew 11. Doubt when unchecked can lead to bitterness and even worse, Unbelief. I think that's the first lesson we're going to learn from this uh, portion of scripture. And the second is that opposition to Jesus's mission to redeem humanity is real, right? Opposition is real to the gospel. The prophets of the Old Testament experienced it. And indeed, many of them were killed for their proclamations of righteousness. 
Uh, John the Baptist, right, was in a prison cell. He experienced great rejection and opposition. Jesus, of course, is our greatest example, and he faced tremendous opposition that will culminate in his crucifixion. Um, The disciples will eventually experience that. The apostle Paul, the great heroes of the faith. Opposition is real, right? Opposition is real to the gospel. And unbelief caused by the sin that is rooted in all of us can so blind the world to the good news of the gospel that we can reject the only path to salvation and redemption. So that's lesson number two. Opposition is real and it's a part of this life. But lesson three, which I think is the most powerful of all of these, is that Jesus still calls all of us, right? The rigid unbeliever, the one who experiences doubts and disappointments, the one who is content in their own morality and self-righteousness, he calls us to himself to experience his salvation, his rest, his forgiveness, his light burden. You know, I can especially rate to that relate to that last part, right, where Jesus says he gives a light burden because I just think the world puts so many burdens on our hearts, right, that are so overwhelming for us, right? The need to perform, the need to succeed, the need to be better than those around us. I'll be honest, I cannot handle those burdens. We cannot handle those burdens. They are far too overwhelming for us. Even the most talented and successful among us cannot handle those kind of burdens. And of course, we cannot take on the most important, the largest burden for us, which is the burden of sin, right? We cannot save ourselves. We cannot find salvation on our own. We need rescue from sin. Jesus then calls us into his presence, right? From from those verses in Matthew 11, he, he calls us in to experience his true redemption, his true rest for our souls, to experience forgiveness of sin, regardless of our doubts, regardless of our rigid unbelief, regardless of our struggles, he is calling you and me. So again, I told you at the beginning, right, something that I want you to be thinking about throughout today's lesson, do you hear Jesus calling you? Do you hear him calling you? Well, that's gonna be our first principle. Let's move on to our second division in Matthew chapter 12, which is the reasons to believe. So the call to believe in Matthew 11, now the reasons to believe in Matthew chapter 12. So in Matthew 12, we are once again witnessing Jesus's main opposition, which is the Pharisees. And this time it is on the issue of the Sabbath. Now, verse one is gonna demonstrate that as we read Matthew 12, you know, we see Jesus's disciples are pulling heads of grain because they're hungry, which by the way, is not against the Sabbath. But the Pharisees call this out and they incorrectly judge it as against Sabbath protocol. Now, what I love about Jesus responding to the Pharisees or anyone that challenged him uh, on, on subjects related to the law or scripture is that Jesus knows his stuff, right? I mean, Jesus really does know his stuff. I mean, you want to go up against Jesus. You want to go up against the author of scripture, <laughs> Right, um, He knows the law and the prophets inside and out because he fulfilled them. So it is just a tremendous response that Jesus gives. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, no, actually, this is not against the Sabbath. Don't you remember David and his companions from 1 Samuel 21, 6? Um, don't, and, and Jesus continues to call out their false sense of moral superiority, right? When Jesus says, um, don't you, did you forget Hosea 6, 6? that God values the state of one's heart 
rather than outward experience, that God desires mercy rather than sacrifice? And another, another interesting circumstance that we encounter that is connected to this in Matthew 12 is what takes place next, right? Which is uh, when a man in the synagogue needs healing of his hand. Uh, what I think, again, it's another absurd um, interaction that we have with the teachers of the law and what Jesus is doing, right? Because um, the, re- the religious laws of the day had gotten so bogged down with self-righteousness and legalism that the teachers of the law were more concerned with following man-made regulations rather than caring for people, right? Which is what God truly cares about. Um, so Jesus heals a man who has a shriveled hand. And in that moment, instead of the Pharisees celebrating that this man who has been coming to the synagogue is healed, instead they begin to be plotting, they start plotting Jesus' death. (laughs) That is an unbelievable response, right? The, The absurdity of sin, the absurdity of unbelief, the absurdity of self righteousness. But it's in that moment. That Jesus is going to withdraw from the crowd because we see this often throughout the Gospels because the Father, right, has an appointed time for Jesus' death, for Jesus' glorification, and that moment was not it. And it's in that moment we actually see a fulfillment of prophecy in verses 18 through 12 from Isaiah 42. And Isaiah 42 says, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In, in his name, the nations will put their hope. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And in the next section of verses, verses 22 through 37, Jesus continues to face opposition, right? Uh, Jesus is healing a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. The Pharisees accused Jesus of being Belzebub, the prince of demons. And Jesus, again, calls out the logic of this statement, saying, right, if I'm a demon, how could I be calling out demons? You know, um, it is by the Spirit of God that I call out demons, And Jesus really is exerting his power and authority, even over the powers of hell. And then Jesus brings up an important topic about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in verses 30 through 32. My translation actually refers to this as speaking against the Holy Spirit. And many helpful commentaries, if you want to do your research outside of this lesson, um, point out that, look, every sin, right, we know every sin can be forgiven when it's confessed and repented of, even blasphemy. Blasphemy basically is intentionally speaking ill against God's character. It's defaming the character and name of God. I mean, an example of this, right, is the Apostle Paul. He was a great blasphemer who would even put Christians to death, yet he became the great follower of Jesus, right? I mean, he has this incredible redemption story in the book of Acts. But Jesus here is referring to one exception, right? This blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is actually a total and outright determined unbelief in Christ as Savior and Lord. It is a rejection that, that Jesus is who he claims to be. It is that one unfor- unforgivable sin, and it is that with all the evidence of Jesus as Messiah, people continue to outrightly refuse belief in him. That is the unforgivable sin. And this is exactly, unfortunately, what the religious teachers of the day were committing in their outright rejection of Christ. 
In this portion of scripture, Jesus reminds us as well that everyone will need to give an account on the day of judgment, including the teachers of the law. And it's this last section of the chapter, as Jesus condemns the wicked generation for their unbelief and their hypocrisy in asking for a sign, that Jesus tells them there will be a sign. Verse 40, Jesus says, For as Jonah was three day, was three, was for three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This, of course, is alluding to Jesus' resurrection. But how about this, right? This is the greatest sign that Jesus is the Messiah, his death and his resurrection, and yet people will still refuse to believe in him. So much so that even the wicked of Nineveh, when they heard Jonah's call, repented, or the queen of the south, or, or actually the queen of Sheba, as mentioned in First Kings 10, who wasn't even um, part of God's chosen people, the wicked of Nineveh and the queen of the south will actually be the ones to judge this wicked generation who disbelieved Christ. I think the point here is that no matter how much evidence there can be, when a heart is hardened and unrepentant, belief in Christ remains elusive. And this is going to lead us to our final principle, is, which is when we come to Jesus, we encounter the King of Heaven, the Lord of humanity, and the conqueror of hell. Our final principle, when we come to Jesus, we encounter the King of Heaven, the Lord of humanity, and the conqueror of hell. All right, so as we conclude, what have we learned from chapters 11 and 12? Well, I think a few things we can learn is that the reality of the fallen world is that people will reject Christ and opposition to his gospel is real. And we can be shaken by unbelief all around us, right? Where it comes in the form of Christian persecution, which is taking place all around the world now, even the marginalization of Christians in modern society, right? We can be shaken by that. But I don't want us to also miss the ultimate point, which is that Jesus is still calling all of us, right? We've learned from chapters 11 and 12 that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus is God. He is one with the Father. He carries out the mission of of his Father through the Holy Spirit. He is the conquered king of heaven. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord over any man-made ritual or tradition. Jesus is superior over it all. He is Lord over all. And Jesus stands victorious over the gates of hell. In his death and resurrection, he defeats sin and death. He has authority over Satan and the demons. And one day at the judgment seat, he is going to send Satan and the demons into eternal torment. He is the conqueror of even the spiritual realm. He is the total conqueror. And this Jesus is calling out to you and me. See, we have to know that in the midst of all of, the, all of our life circumstances, in the midst of our doubt and our questions and our struggles, that Jesus is present in our loneliness. He doesn't abandon us as he did not abandon John the Baptist in our doubts and our questions, but he's with us in them. He provides his presence and guidance in them. Even when we are struggling with the great burdens of our heart, he is calling out to us to provide the soul rest and soul satisfying rescue that we need. And even to those who refuse the evidence of Jesus as Messiah, whose hearts are hardened in unbelief, his call remains the same. Come 
and find rest in me, the savior of your soul. Do you hear him today? So how about you? If you're honest, how about you if you've never put your faith in Christ through repentance and trust? Rather than waiting for the perfect moment or what you think will be the right amount of evidence or whatever may be hindering you from coming to him, why not just repent and trust in him right now? Right? If you read the Gospel of Matthew, you have to know that this is a supernatural book. This is not just a normal book about a normal teacher. This is the word of God, and this is declaring without a shadow of doubt that Jesus is God and Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's not just the promised Messiah for the world. He's your Messiah. He's the Savior of your soul. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait one second. And lastly, for the believer who maybe struggles with legalism, or maybe performing for others, for those continuing to struggle with habitual sin, may we meet Jesus in his word right now through prayer, through daily reading of his word. May we meet the one who eases our burden and quiets our heart. In spite of all the unbelief and the doubt and the questions and the struggle, Jesus' remains the same. Come to me and find the rest that you're longing for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you continue to call us uh, in the midst of whatever we're going through in life, through our confusion and our doubt, and our brokenness and our loneliness and our struggle. Even in the midst of our sin, Lord, you call us to faith in you. God, I pray as we are celebrating the holiday season and celebrating your birth, Jesus, that it would be a time of soul rest. And Lord, I know we have many responsibilities and many distractions and parties to go to and family gatherings, but God, will you help us remember the meaning of this season, which is you. You came to earth to call us into relationship with the eternal God. May we celebrate that. May we enter into that for those who have never done it before and for those who maybe do believe in you, but Lord, we need to be refreshed. We need to, we need to be reminded of the goodness of your gospel. Jesus, would you provide that for us this Christmas season? I thank you that you have preserved the words of these gospels, God, that we may learn from them and learn from your son. I thank you, Lord, for everybody listening to this message today. And I pray, Lord, that it would bless everyone. And I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for giving a listen. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We will see you in the new year as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. Thanks, everybody.